Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin, brought to you by The Nation magazine. Right now, we're going to do our latest in what we've been calling basketball butterfly effect with basketball savant Arya Shirazi. But we're not in doing a butterfly effect this week. Usually, we do a butterfly effect, like what if this person had drafted this person? And, you know, what if the wind had blown off somebody's hat right when David Stern was about to speak? I don't know. Uh, I just saw Miller's Crossing hats in the air, very much on the brain. The question what we're facing today, though, is not a butterfly effect, although you could argue that we could find a lot of butterfly effects over the course of five decades regarding this topic. But the question we want to answer is, why in the blue hell have the New York Knicks not won a title in 50 years? This is New York City. It's the city game. It's the game that made the game. It's where Curtis Blow wrote basketball. It's the site of some of the most dynamic teams in NBA history. It's just that those dynamic teams kind of curdled up and died in 1973. So what the hell has happened in the last 50 years? How has this town remained titleless when it comes to basketball of all sports? How has Eli Manning won two and the Knicks won zero? It makes no damn sense. So Arya Shirazi, first and foremost, welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast brought to you by The Nation magazine. Thanks very much, Dave. Looking forward to talking about this. So five decades, Arya. Five decades and no title for just a team that is iconic. And the thing about it that troubles me, I just want you to start throwing some reasons at me why you think that's the case. But a couple of the things that I just keep thinking about, what's so weird is that it's not that Madison Square Garden has turned into a piece of crap. It's still the world's most famous arena. It's still like you get a buzz when you go in there, unlike any other freaking arena in the country. And you're right on 34th Street. You know, there's still the vibe. So New York still has all of this, and yet the teams have been piss poor. It's, I don't know, it's, it's like having a, 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 one of those Bentleys, and instead of using gasoline, uh, you use tab. I'm just riffing here, buddy. Okay, so I'm throwing it to you. Five decades, no titles, what comes to your mind? 
depression. Uh, you know, sadness about that, you know, for the reasons you talked about, you know, what New York means to basketball and what basketball means to New York, you know, <laughs> there's a, uh, that's incredibly personal to us. And you had said in your intro that, uh, you know, the franchise is really kind of, uh, curdled died curtained curdled and died since 1973 that is true in the ultimate goal sense but not i mean especially the time when uh when you and i were growing up in new york alongside the knicks uh they were not dead actually i mean they were uh, a, a big part of city culture for, uh, you know, about a 15-year period, the entire 90s, and then the, the few years before and after that, or in a more general sense, really, the Patrick Ewing years. And, uh, and that's one of the things... And that's one of the things I want to explore with you, and maybe we should just start th there before uh, coming up with theories about, you know, NBA stars preferring Miami because of warmer weather. And, you know, it, it's easy to pin a lot of it on piss poor ownership, particularly Dolan, but Dolan has not exactly been the owner for 50 years. So that's a little too easy. I think we overstate the Ewing years. I mean, when you go through them, it's, he doesn't get to, he's drafted in 85, gets to the finals in 94. First of all, that that's a long time. Uh, but second of all, it the, the going doesn't get good until Pat Riley gets there uh, in 91. So that's six years into Ewing's career. And remember, those are bigger six years back then because he spent four years at Georgetown. So it's, it's not the same like today where a guy in his sixth year could become a first-time All-Star. I mean, the expectations were so high for Ewing out of the gate. And the statistics are there. But when you go through the years, it's like terrible, terrible, terrible. Oh, hey, they hire Rick Patino. You know, they do a couple of interesting things for a couple of years. Patino bolts, terrible, terrible, and then Riley comes in. So Ewing, I mean, you know he'll always have a place in my heart, but not David Robinson, not Tim Duncan, not Kareem, not a franchise changer. Not Elijah Wan. Elijah Wan, who makes the finals in what, his second year in the league? I mean, so so I, I don't want to, as we have this conversation, I don't want to mistake a blip for a renaissance. That's my only point. And it is, it's a very, very pertinent point. Uh, I agree with just about everything you said. I'm not trying to quibble on language, but Ewing was certainly a franchise changer. He was absolutely a franchise changer and uh, and and likely not beyond that as far as uh, lofty adjectives go. But, you know, but but certainly a franchise changer nonetheless. But I actually agree really with uh, with your main point. Uh, there have been, we recently, when talking about 
uh, Stephen Curry and about, uh, you know, what if he had slipped to the Knicks and if they had chosen him, what would have happened to the Knicks franchise and Curry's career versus uh, what has happened with him on the Warriors. And, uh, and, and we went into to many aspects of the Knicks. And again, we are, you know, in the, the Knicks right now in the midst of kind of their sunniest season in a long time, uh, you know, after like a five playing 500 ball for about the first month, they've really come on. Uh, Brunson is fantastic. Randall's having a great year. The OG Ananobi acquisition has been fabulous so far. So the Knicks look like they're going to be a factor of sorts in the Eastern Conference. And saying that sentence is a triumph in itself because that has not been been said about the Knickerbockers franchise, uh, but only a, ha a very few times in the past 20 years or so. So as we had talked about again, in the context of the Curry discussion, uh, it has, it, it, it's, it's been a long time since the Knicks were solidly and unquestionably uh, in the conversation of trying to cha uh, chase a title. And that, of course, is the, uh, uh, is the franchise that we were largely following, you know, certainly when we were in high school, whenever that was. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, you were saying the Ewing years are overstated. I think, you know, Ewing was our superstar. And so, you know, that was, you know, you know, Knicks fans are fiercely defensive of Patrick. And there was a time, especially when all these players were active, that, that Knicks fans kind of bristled at the suggestion that Ewing was not Elijah or that Ewing was not even Robinson. That was like a point of pride for Knicks fans. And it is true. It was true then. And it's true now that they've been retired for decades. Uh, and and uh, the titles, not only the fact that each of them have a most valuable player award and Patrick does not, uh, but they have rings, multiple rings, both of them. Uh, Patrick never was the most valuable player. And I think that's the thing. I think that uh, that being a Knicks fan, you had mentioned the Riley years, which is really, of course, the pinnacle of what the Knicks hope to achieve uh, is, is, uh, is the Pat Riley teams of the 90s centered around Patrick Ewing. Uh, and doing battle, fierce battle, with a few different teams that would go on and win championships. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Patrick was never a top five player. He was he was the best center in the East for a long time until Shaquille came along, mm -hmm. and then for a while he was second. Uh, he was the leader of a team, routinely winning 50-plus games, mm -hmm. winning division titles. With uh, Riley. Winning, well, winning playoff rounds. But he was never a top-five player. There were just too many better players playing at that time. He was a top-ten player. 
Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that even when things were good, so much of Nick's history post their two titles in the 70s uh, has echoes of heartache, winds up with heartache, is because those Ewing teams largely overachieved in many See, ways. You just uh, said something really important. Because those most people would say those Ewing teams underachieved. I think they overachieved because we were overstating how good Ewing was. And we were overstating who he was because he was a star in New York. When if he'd played somewhere else, it might have played out very differently. You know, he could have been the guy who, oh, wow, at Georgetown, we thought he was going to be Bill Russell. And somehow he turned into the greatest jump shooting big man of his time easily, you have to say that. And someone who wasn't quite the athletic wunderkind that people thought he was going to be coming out of Georgetown. I mean, his knees were just too tough. You know, four years of Big East ball then was like, you know, uh, some sort of rough and tumble semi pro league. People were throwing fists. You know, Ralph Dalton was not messing around. So there, Michael Graham. I mean, so so I just think he showed up w- with some tread on the tires, as it were, that a player today certainly would not. Um, and then that player would be managed in a way that Ewing, you know, all out for John Thompson, you know, was not. So that, so be, but because we got so defensive about Ewing, it'll, it, it, we elided the fact that the guy needs help. You know, he needed a young Xavier McDaniel. You know what I'm saying? Like supersonics Xavier McDaniel. That's who he needed. And he never got a player that good in all his time with the Knicks as supersonic Xavier McDaniel. As you said earlier, Patrick comes into the league at 22 Mm -hmm. after four bruising years with the Hoyas. So he comes in heralded rightly so as the number one pick three national uh championship appearances in four years one of the greatest college players ever uh and so comes in at 22 as you said not 19 so the clock is ticking right away in a sense Mm -hmm. uh that might be overstating it a little bit but you know there's not all the time in the world and i think part of, you know, a a large part of the thrill and inevitable agony of being a Knicks fan during that time was that the Knicks were were never the team to beat, as I think we've both been agreeing on. The Knicks were the hunters, not the hunted. And there is a you know, there's a different psychology, there's a different mindset being the hunted or a pursuer. And for years, as we said, spanning across different uh, different teams that were at the top of the East that the Knicks were looking to supplant, the Knicks year in and year out, starting with Patino, but then really, as we've been saying, uh, crystallizing and sustaining under Pat Riley, the Knicks were defeating and or 
going down in defeat in heroic, bloody fashion to teams that were more talented. That, that you know, it, it, if it is and was a superstars league, we did not have the best superstar. Right. We had a superstar. I think he would have been a star just about whatever team he had gone to. Patrick Ewing was that great. But as, as I had just said, uh, there were always several superstars, other franchise players uh, uh, that were above Patrick. Yeah. So th- there, was a, th- there was a sense of striving and there was a sense going up against either these more pedigreed or more talented teams every year. Uh, it was that sense of always climbing a hill and and beating prettier, more talented teams through toughness. And and there's and and there's a romanticism about that, about being tougher and working harder. Well, the, the best-selling book by Chris Herring, Blood in the Garden. I mean. That to me says so much. I interviewed Chris Herring about this, and the first thing I, I asked him was, how is a book about a team that never won a title a bestseller? You know, this is not some heralded all-time team. But at the same t- but he, you know, and he made the point, you know, a lot of it is New York and, you know, the fact that it's New York. And a lot of it is just th- this incredible, rugged affection that people had for these teams. I mean, these teams were kind of badass. And that's why we like them. And uh, I'd love to, I mean, if you're ready to, I'd love to move beyond Riley now. Um, you had Don Nelson briefly, which we've discussed, was, was just a damn shame that that didn't click. Although the legacy of Don Nelson with the Knicks is unleashing Mace in your face. Anthony Mason dribbling the ball up the court uh, and running the break, running the point even. Van Gundy. And then 1999, which another moment that Knicks fans adore that I think the over-adoration hid the bigger structural problems. Do you want to talk a little bit about 99, that strike-shortened strike year and what, what, what went down? Sure. Uh as we as we've just been saying, uh, the Knicks, even at the height of their success uh, in the '90s and any time afterwards, uh, were never the most talented team. Were never the favorite. Uh, I think it was the reason they are so adored and fondly remembered by myself and, and many others uh, is because the Knicks were going up against these foes and climbing a hill and coming up just short. And the ways in which they came up short, the details would change, but the end result was the same. So there was that sense, again, that sense of uh, of beautiful struggle as a Knicks fan uh, that, that opened up that hope that next year would be different, but also kind of created an expectation 
that at the very least, the team was always going to be hardworking and competitive. Uh, the Van Gundy years are not to be glossed over. He was a, really a continuation of Riley, mm -hmm. uh, but also, you know, kind of, you know, put his own uh, his own stamp on the team. Van Gundy was a great coach in the NBA and for the Knicks. And really, the you know, the story doesn't end with Riley as Patrick got older and creakier and was no longer a top 10 player in the league. Uh, the Van Gundy years and his system and the players brought in uh, enabled that uh, that hopeful championship window to be extended, uh, you know, uh, five or six years after Riley was already in Miami, actually, yes. and uh, and doing playoff battles with with the Knicks. Uh, oh yeah. So. Oh yeah. Now we're talking. You know, so night. I mean, and I'm just supporting that sense of being the pursuers as opposed to uh, the team with the target on their back is that since Ewing was drafted in 1985, I can only remember one time that the Knicks went into the playoffs as the number one seed in the East. I haven't looked it up. I might be forgetting a year, but I don't think so. I think mm -hmm. only 1993 Mm. Were they the number one seed? Uh, and even then, they certainly were not favored to knock off Chicago. Were they not the in 94 in Jordan's retirement year? Nope. Nope. Uh, they, they weren't. Uh, Who was they, they, they? It was Atlanta. They were in 93, which, add, which was the Charles Smith year, which adds mm. again to the extra heartbreak uh, because not only did Charles miss numerous layups that would have won the game and, and gone to game seven, but for the first time against a team that was favored, uh, the Knicks had home court advantage. The deciding game and games would have been at the garden. And that was the only time I think it's telling that the two times that they have been in the finals since winning it in 1973. Uh, one time they were the number two in 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 94, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, what went on in 94. But Atlanta was the number one team, and then they were knocked off by Indiana, who wound up having the first of their kind of epic playoff series Real with quick. the Knicks. The best player on that Atlanta team, would that have been Steve Smith at that point? Danny Manning. The Manning was traded. The player on that Neek. Atlanta team was Danny Manning. Yeah. Neek was, Neek was traded to the Clippers for Manning when Manning was kind of an all-star forward with the, with, the, with the Clippers. And Atlanta, they're coached by Lenny Wilkins. And they were just having a really, really, they were kind of number one, I think, all year. It was, as you said, the Jordan retirement year. And Chicago was still very, very competitive, but 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 weren't on top of the East. Atlanta kind of cruised from start to finish and then made a controversial trade deadline deal, trading Neek 
for a younger Manning, which didn't turn out they got uh, the way they hoped, didn't lead them to the finals. They got bounced in the second round, and then Manning bounced. Uh, wow, bruh. First of all, I got to give you a lot of credit because you've nailed this. They were the number one seed. That was the year of Manning. Uh, very well done. But there were two people on that team who, are, who averaged double-doubles, neither named Danny Manning. Can you name them? Oh, on the Hawks. Okay, so 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 maybe he wasn't he wasn't the top gun. Uh, no, no, no. He had a great year. I'm I'm staring at it. They're just he might have even led them in scoring. But I'm just saying there were two other people on the team who averaged double doubles. Can you Kevin name Kevin Willis? Yes, nineteen and twelve. Of course, a good human player, double. man. Oh, good Kevin player. was really good. And uh, the other was probably a guard. Uh, Laylock. I'll give you a hint. Jeremy spoken yesterday. It is Mookie. Yes, Mookie Blaylock. Yeah. I know you said Blaylock before I sang, but I, I didn't want to lose the opportunity for a solo. No, I'm glad that you sang. Thank you. I thought uh, you were gonna be like Jeremy Lynn. Yeah, uh, I I, uh, I really like both of those guys, and I think I stand by my earlier assertion that Manning was the best player on that team. Yeah, I think no, 93 Manning's better than those guys. 94 Manning. It's so funny, uh, though, because it, you recall that, and I don't recall that at all. Um, but, 19- so anyway, so, so, so the Knicks, you know, mm-hmm. kind of capitalize on that and go to the finals, obviously losing in typically heartbreaking fashion uh, to the Rockets and Ewing's kind of arch nemesis uh, Akeem, uh, 99, we were talking about, uh, we finally, I finally meandered back to that. Uh, 99 is the most typical, of course, it's the strike. So it was a super weird year. Uh, you know, by the time the playoffs started, it felt like, you know, players were just kind of getting into shape. So the standings were certainly more arbitrary, going into the postseason than they ever would have been in a normal regular season, the sample size being a lot smaller. Uh, And so, of course, the Knicks were the number eight that went to the finals in uh, an incredibly ragtag, lovable run to the championship, again, because it was a curtailed season the Knicks were not the typical number eight. Yeah. And if, and if, and if it had been a full 82, I'm thinking that they probably wouldn't have been number eight. They might not have gotten home court in the first round, but I don't, I, you know, they were not a number eight squad. Then again, they were not a team that anybody was, was pegging shortened season or not making a finals run. It was still Van Gundy. But Ewing, I, uh, it was really uh, even more hobbled than he had been. Yeah. Uh, Remember, the run came because Ewing sprained both his wrists, right? Oh, so, he, so Patrick was inactive for that run? For the run, and then it was, we'll do some fact-checking real quick, but Patrick inactive for the run. Pretty pretty clear about, pretty sure about that. Um, so, right, so we're talking Alan Houston. Uh, Spreewell, 
uh, Latrell being given a second chance on the East Coast uh, and instantly becoming a garden favorite, of course. Uh, Larry Johnson and Marcus Camby, which as I say that team, I was like, oh, I love that team, really fun. But part of the love and the, the fondness of memory comes from the fact that that team is not really a finals team. Uh, uh, especially without even a an aged Ewing, even taking him out of the equation. So it was so unlikely that they would march through the postseason uh, where ultimately the dream died. And I think they weren't that competitive against the Spurs in the finals. But until that point, it was uh, it was incredibly fun. Uh, uh. Speaking of fun, do you know who was uh, on that 1999 team? For the Knicks? Yeah. Uh, who would be – I mean, I guess I'm at – I'll, I'll just mention a few, guys, the, a few guys. Then there's also – there's Kurt Thomas. Yeah. And then it was Warden, Warden Childs, right? And, Am I forgetting uh, anybody big? No, not Dudley? big. Just fun. Uh, Rick Brunson. Rick. So Jalen, Jalen's poppy. How cool is I that? Remember that. I he love was barely that. An, he was barely an NBA player. Barely. True. His son's a lot better. His son is... I've, I've made so many hellaciously... I've said so many hellaciously stupid things about basketball over the years, not the least of which is what I just said about Ewing. He was with the team, not the leading scorer by, by any stretch, but was with the team through that playoff run and then tore his Achilles right before the finals and didn't play against the Spurs. That's the story. Okay. So I, I thought he had been happen. involved at, at one during the run. But the, the run was uh, all about Camby and Spreewell. With some Allen Houston on the side, right? No, I, I think Houston was the main guy, was, was probably like, the leading Houston. scorer. I think it was really Spreewell, Houston. Camby was great at that mm -hmm. time. Uh, and as, as I think you've talked about on an earlier uh, episode, uh, Larry Johnson, uh, uh, really a groundbound Larry Johnson, uh, old before his time, uh, you know, really contributing so and much being harder. a factor on that team uh, uh, outside of what it looked like he would have been able to accomplish. So, again, I, th that unlikely run kind of creates in in new yorkers creates almost a false sense of optimism and a false sense of where the knicks are as a team relative to other finals contenders and i think they make a couple of more playoff appearances with behind that houston spreewell core uh before inevitably Spreewell in Houston is your best players isn't good enough. And, yeah. and that's really where uh, where the murkiness starts. And save for a, a couple of very brief flashes of something better remains until, I don't know, pretty much this year. Yeah. Uh, so... So that is, it, it's really the two stories. It is the, 
it is the overachieving Knicks team, as you said, playing a style of ball that wasn't innovative because it was the Detroit Pistons had really brought that kind of physical, punishing, dirty aspect, a relentless defensive play. They had uh, shown that that could win championships. The Knicks inherited that and had the perfect group of guys to become the team that did that and were successful at it. And then, uh, all right, I just, oh, no, you finish, finish. No, 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 right. And so then, so that's like the first half, you know, those teams that kind of, in my mind, maximized their talent and their uh, disparate parts to become a finals contender every year, falling short at various points each year going into a team that just suffered from two decades of terrible management. Uh, and of course, Dolan is, is such a cartoon. Well, there you go. There you go. I wanted to, because I think this is the point where we have to talk about what I think of as the original sin for the last 25 years and the toxicity of James Dolan. Ewing was done. He was making something like 18 million a year. He was in the last year of his contract. It would have been so easy for them to bid him farewell, say, you know, he's just a non-factor. So they'd be like, sign wherever you want. We get 18 million off of our books and we could start, you know, rebuilding the program here on a firm basis. What do they do instead? They trade Patrick to Seattle for Vin Baker. Now, Vin Baker in New York. Did Vin the, play with the Knicks? Vin, yeah, man, dude, hit the Googles while I'm saying this. Absolutely, I did. He played with the Knicks. And that's when he got into his big substance abuse problems, which they were oddly always very careful to say was alcohol-related and not drug-related. Maybe it was just alcohol. It's just uh, interesting that that's rare. I mean, that's like, you know, Chris Mullen. It's like, it's just the booze. Um, when, as you and I know, booze can be much more harmful. Okay. Um, just look at Vin Baker. Just look at Vin Baker and from, from Hartford. Now, so, so, so then the Knicks are tied to something like five years of Vin Baker with all his issues. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry to jump in. Yes, it is the, and again, I actually, it's all coming back, but I guess I just, uh, erased. Uh, the whole Vin Baker in the garden out of my mind. That's just a step too traumatic uh, for my sensibilities. I knew Patrick had gone to Seattle, but I the, the particulars uh, uh, weren't uh, had been erased. Uh, along with that decision is the decision to give a max contract to Allen Houston. That's right. Which is big, which is a huge move in the transition into irrelevancy, mm -hmm. embarrassing irrelevancy, because Houston is, you're the Knicks. Houston is your best player. And 
after that groovy run to the finals in 99, it goes back to the reality that if Houston is your best player or if Sprewell is your best player and Allen's your leading scorer, you're really not good enough. Mm-hmm. Your ceiling's low. But he's still, they kind of have no other options. And it, it, it's the mindset of you don't let your best player leave and be great somewhere else. And, God, and, and this is the Dolan mentality. God forbid we have to rebuild in New York. Because you got to be a cha-cha-cha. So Houston gets a max contract, meaning he's occupying a huge chunk of the Knicks salary cap. And he's still Allen Houston. And then in short order, he becomes Allen Houston who needs microfracture surgery. Mm. So it goes from seriously overpaying a player who's not that good to seriously overpaying a player who's not playing. And that actually is is kind of indicative of the decision-making of the Knicks that just kind of, that they just keep wading deeper into and it's harder for them to emerge. Uh, and, 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 And really the state of their team, they actually, the first rebound move they make and feel free to, to cut in at any time. Well, I was uh, thinking about I'm Peter. Saying. I was thinking about Peter Vesey, who has me blocked on all social media, calling Alan Houston Albatross Houston. Yeah, like as about as sensitive as his medical Bill Cartwright lines back when we had Big Bill in the middle. Um, I never thought Vesey deserved to call his column Hoop Du Jour. No, that should have been somebody else. Just another bald guy cracking wise. No, a guy who was known for trying to get into fights when All-Star break, when they would do, uh, the journalists would pick, play full court, and he was apparently a cheap shot artist. Just not surprising in the slightest. No, not surprising in the slightest. But our, so we can elide over, if you like, just the, the horrors of like Jerome James and his big contract. And the, I have nothing to say about that. The, the really upsetting Stefan Marbury years, because those should Well, that actually, that is their pivot move. Yeah. That's their pivot move. Van Gundy quits. He knows things ain't getting better. So he leaves kind of in a way the last vestiges of when they were good. Uh, and they uh, swing a trade with Phoenix to get Stefan Marbury, Brooklyn-born, Coney Island, Steph, all-star Steph. Steph, who's been put up big numbers in Minnesota, in New Jersey, and in Phoenix. So there is excitement. It's New York, so it's undue excitement to an extent. Exactly. But, but Stefan Marbury wasn't just you know, local boy comes home. Stefan Marbury at the time was kind of acknowledged as a level below Allen Iverson. Mm-hmm. And that's when Iverson was at the height of his powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, ne- uh, it- it's easy to forget that now. 
And in reality, maybe it was two, two and a half levels below Iverson. But Marbury was a player who was really highly regarded, who put up very big numbers on teams that sometimes made the playoffs and was an exciting player to watch. And by the time, you know, and so when he comes to the Knicks, again, he is from New York and he's young and he's an all-star. And this is kind of the most exciting acquisition since Ewing a while ago. And totally uh, I think, you know, I, I, it, it, it's, it had it's to be there. Hazy. It's all hazy now, but I think maybe they make a fairly inconsequential playoff appearance under Marbury. But of course, uh, it, it, it doesn't amount to anything larger than that. And actually, it's really the beginning of a fairly rapid descent for uh, Marbury's production, career, and kind of uh, and uh, mental health. In standing, uh, I mean, his place with the reputation for sure. Reputation, him and Isaiah and Dolan, you know, running just basically a, a sexual harassment firm uh, called Dolan Thomas and Marbury. Not to make light of it, it's really screwed up. But I know for a lot, at that time for me, and that's when I was living in D.C. and Jordan in D.C. and after Jordan, Gilbert Arenas. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing being a Knicks fan? Like it, it, it cracked me. Like them, like the Thomas, Marbury, Dolan, Anuka Brown, Sanders stuff. I mean, it was just so gross. It was very, very grim. Uh, to add insult to injury, to multiple injuries, uh, the Suns are able to rid pawn off Marbury and his big contract on the Knicks to be able to pretty much give Marbury's contract to Steve Nash. Right. Who promptly wins two MVPs, to, uh, takes Phoenix to uh, the top of the league for a few years uh and and in a way changes the way uh nba offense is played so that's just another uh uh another painful aspect of uh, a move which at first seemed like it could yield uh yield thing uh a positive direction then but then for a second the Knicks were fun and I was pulled back in. And this is just, this is so Knicks. What I'm about to say is as Knicks as thinking that all you have to do is give Larry Brown $50 million or, or Phil Jackson a gajillion dollars and everything will automatically heal itself. You know, just these splat, like always trying to win the back page, not the standings. And the thing that when I was pulled back was the team with Amari Stoudemire Wilson Chandler, a young Danilo Gallinari, Raymond Felton. I liked this team. And then there's all this rumbling about Carmelo is going to be a free agent at the end of the year. So what do the Knicks do? Can they wait six freaking months and sign Carmelo to the free agent deal to, for where everybody knows he wants to be and keep some of these other pieces? Or do they trade Chandler 
Gallinari, who other good pieces too for Carmelo, because that's the way I remember it. Is that the wrong way to remember it? As we've said, Knicks teams and Knicks fans are actually most in their element when they're not the most talented, but have a lot of heart mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and are a defense running scrappy squad working together to maximize the most out of their parts to make a successful whole. That's who they were when the goal was a, was a championship. And you were talking about kind of that fleeting team post-Marbury, pre-Carmelo, that again was, was exciting and hardworking and were uh, knocking off teams that were more talented than they were. And so, you know, and... Uh, and so there was briefly kind of excitement in the garden and excitement around uh, around the Knicks. Again, I believe Mike Woodson is the coach at that time. Uh, and you talked about the Carmelo deal, but it's kind of, it isn't just the Knicks. I, it would be easy to say, well, it's New York, you know, so everything, you know, of course, you know, they have to go for the big, the big splash, the big home run. Uh, yes, and in New York, everything is magnified, and at its most shrill and desperate, things have the ability to get dumber in New York than in many other places uh, because of those expectations and, uh, and, and the huge shadow of the media. But even with a fun team looking to make a little bit of playoff noise that's not enough that's not good enough for what the Knicks are so now that we're talking about something that occurred a long time ago it's pretty much universal among Knicks fans and basketball talkers that uh that ultimately Carmelo Anthony at the Knicks was uh was a failure was oh, a disappointment awesome. Yeah. You and I have talked about that in a few different uh, conversations. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I think we're talking 2011. Mello has only been having great years in Denver, yeah. winning scoring titles, uh, having a, a scrappy team looking to win 48 games on the hard work, sweat, and grit of Wilson Chandler, Raymond Felton, and Gallinari is not going to satisfy Knicks fans beyond beyond a year or Knicks ownership. So, uh, you know, I, I think it would have been rare at the time to find anyone who was against acquiring Carmelo. Uh, you know, and I think mm -hmm. if, if you had even named, uh, named the players, it would have been, uh, of course, mm. you know, for, for, for some, you know, Above average starters, of course, you know, of course you get Carmelo, especially because, as you said, just added Amare Stoudemire in the last what coming coming off Phoenix in the last one or two years of him still being an all star. Because uh, he he um he was big enough for New York. You know what I'm saying? Like, like it seemed like he was glowing from the attention as far and not shrinking. But, you know, his knees are his knees. 
And Amari was all about that quick jump dunk. And once he lost that, it just, it was, you know, just a matter of time. Right. But even a healthy Amare, which the Knicks had for maybe a year, a year and a half, uh, a healthy Stoudemire with some very, very good other players, it still is not good enough. That's a second round team in 2010, 2011, 2012. So, uh, you know, in a way, Anthony comes available. They had missed on LeBron, despite your optimism about uh, about that. Uh, and you remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember. I was hoping you were right. You weren't. Uh, and and oh, so in a way, right. it was. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've even talked about the parallel careers of LeBron and Carmelo. And really being linked until they weren't linked anymore. Until LeBron didn't have to be linked to Carmelo anymore. But for a long time, they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you miss out on LeBron. Melo's kind of, again, the naturally, you know, like a natural. Silver medal. Well, well exactly. Uh, and, 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 and it's those moves. So it isn't even... Acquiring Marbury is, you know, was not a stupid move by management. Acquiring Carmelo, yes, did not work out like anybody hoped, but also not a complete, not a, not an asinine move, a move that actually makes sense. You can be for it or against it, but, you know, it has, you know, like a potentially higher reward. Mm-hmm. Is, is Carmelo at that time leading you to a championship? Never came close to that. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of everything else. I think it is the, it's the savior mentality. Yes. That Dolan has had. Mike D'Antoni, Harry Brown. Mike D'Antoni, Isaiah, Phil Jackson, you know, that kind of, that savior figure who is going to come in and there's got to be a recipe. There's got to be a formula and we ain't got it. We don't know what it is, but other teams are winning championships. So somebody has it. Yeah. So if we can just bring in the person who has it, then we'll have it. And that really, it's that that defines, uh, that defines the Knicks pretty much until they bring in uh, Tom Thibodeau. And of course, the story story is not over. You know, it's nice to make it to the second round when you haven't made it to the playoffs eight years in a row. That's great. And I'm not diminishing that. And I'm not trying to be snarky at all. But I'm saying, you know, the Knicks are having a really good year. And, you know, and look like they're going to be able to sustain above average play. And I still don't see any way that they make it past the second round. Me neither. Regardless Uh, of who they play, there's just too many better teams in the East. It's not an indictment on them. You know, it's really cool to be where they are after being where they were for so long. Uh, I ask you, can New York – I love this team, by the way, partly because I've been a Brunson guy since Nova. Um, 
and seeing a team where Brunson can just cook, like those small stretches when he was on the Mavericks with Luka on the bench, or that one playoff game when Luka didn't play and Brunson dropped like 40 and everyone was like, who is that guy? And I remember being like, that was the goddamn NCAA player of the year is who that guy was with two titles. Put some respect on his name. They're always like second round draft pick, Jalen Brunson. It's like, this this guy's the best of the best at the collegiate level. So I, I still get worked up about it. So Brunson, a team built around Brunson. There's been a lot in the media where Becky Hammond and uh, Candace Parker were basically like, well, you can only go so far with him as the, your lead. And to me, it's like, be patient with it. Please don't trade for Donovan Mitchell. You know, I'd rather you trade for Donovan McNabb. Like, don't have something where you have two little dudes in the backcourt, both ball dominant, you know, please. And, but I don't know. I mean, the recipe now that Embiid seems very ensconced in Philly and very happy. And now that Giannis, although things got a little little testy with Adrian Griffin being fired and Giannis being like, wasn't me. um, I don't know if it's all about trying to get some big splash guy. I mean, there just, there might have to be just a different path like the Nuggets took. I agree with you, and I agree with Becky. Uh, I agree with you in, yes, don't... When you have finally built a team, or the beginnings of a team, and are starting to rebuild a culture that's been so rotten for so long, and now doesn't feel like it is, then I agree. Don't make, don't fuck up the chemistry to get a bigger name in there. See, give this team a playoff run. I'm not saying don't make uh, a couple of roster improvements at the deadline if you can, but don't do anything uh, kind of earth-shaking just to just to make a big move when you finally have a team that seems to be winning games consistently. I agree with the naysayers in that ultimately I don't see a team led by Jalen Brunson making it to the finals. Does that mean Jalen can't be the starting point guard and team leader and still an all-star on a team that, that, that that makes a run to be the best in the East? Sure. But yes, I think that that they will have to upgrade. You know, I, I agree. Don't don't uh bring in another uh ball dominant small guy in the Donovan Mitchell mode. Uh, you know, maybe upgrade in, in the front court uh to, to try to take that next step. Uh but I do think I don't look uh, – I look at this Knicks team right now as uh, as a really nice story and a nice – a team that's got a nice thing and a good vibe going. I don't, as currently constructed, look at them as a serious, serious team in the East. There are five or six teams that are just better. Well – the at times imbecilic, but sometimes perceptive radio host Colin Cowherd says 
don't confuse a good story with a good team. And that, that I thought was kind of smart because we do get it like Jeremy Lin, you know, we do get enraptured in these stories and we're not looking at it honestly. So as we wrap up the show, oh, please, please. The story is the Knicks don't suck. Yes. That's the story. So that's real. And Jalen Brunson's got that dog in him. That's the story too. Yeah. This, this, you know, I remember, you know, I, 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 haven't been able to afford to go to a game at Madison Square Garden since about 1987. But uh, but I remember Nick, you know, a, the a couple of years, not that long ago, when it seemed like the crowd at Madison Square Garden was just waiting until that point where they could break out in a fire Isaiah chant. That like that was the most spirited that crowd was gonna get, and often that chant, that opportunity came in the first quarter, mm. and 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 that was a depressing state of a team. It was depressing to watch a team where that was kind of you know the one uniting force among those watching. The the story is that the Knicks have a playoff team so mm -hmm. so that is real uh only the second time this century they've been at least 10 games over 500 at this point in the season so there is no reason to diminish that and keep it going i mean they, they they're getting better every month so you know prove my ass wrong beat teams that i think are better exactly. but anna uh, has changed the mathematics on that to me, common sense statements that there's no way they get past the second round. I do think Ananobi at least scrambles that math a little bit. If they save a trade, uh, a deadline deal, save bringing in yeah. uh, a DeJounte Murray, who I'm a huge sure. fan of, or another starter, you know, uh, 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 somebody who who puts Steven Chenzo back to the bench, for example, and Dante's having a really good year for the Knicks. Right. But you know, but you know, bumping up in that regard, if a move like that does not happen, I will be absolutely shocked if the Knicks make the conference finals. I will be shocked. Uh, I you know whatever four or five teams they would run into in any second round matchup, the Knicks as currently constructed beating those teams in a seven game series, I will be very, very impressed. Uh, and I'll be very, very surprised. But All I'm saying is that I agree with you, but all I'm saying is that Ananobi to me scrambles it from no way with, you know, Barrett and quickly to now being like, could he bother some of these wings just enough? You know, Giannis doesn't like playing him. Tatum doesn't like playing him. These are better teams, but could he bother them just enough to free things up for the other guys? Could Randall actually have a bomb ass playoff series? He's been so mediocre in the playoffs. We know what Jalen can do. 
I'm not saying they're going to make the conference finals. I'm not a struns, but I'm ready to have a conversation in a way I wasn't before about how they could and what the path could be. One thing that certainly helps the next prospect of making a playoff run, as well as any other team in the East that's looking to have similar success is the Bucks hiring Doc Rivers. Because that definitely takes Milwaukee out of doing anything. Uh, uh, you know, he... Uh, wow. That, that's a strong take, Shiraz. You know, that effect, you know... That's a championship coach you're talking about. Yeah, he had one year where he had the best team and he didn't fuck it up. And I thought at the time when I was young and beautiful, I thought that he was the truly the architect of that Celtics team. That like having Doc, you know, Thibodeau as, you know, the, the scowling defensive mastermind, but Doc as the architect in all ways, Doc has proven himself so kind of incompetent at times inept with different teams different really really good teams since that year that that my opinion about him has completely changed and as i say i have no idea what went on with adrian griffin you know no idea really what's happening in milwaukee it it it's really a drag to get canned when you're 30 and 13 so uh yeah but a lot of the reports behind the scenes make clear why it had to happen there's a lot of reporting there about the players it just not it's just wasn't working you know this champion i mean and they should have seen it first time head coach with a win now club that's not a great combination and aren't they just doing a lot of winning they're yeah, good players are having great seasons. But it's you're right, but it's against the worst schedule in the NBA statistically. And some of those wins have been really, really close against teams like the Pistons and the horrific Wizards. So as it's said, a lot of dissension. You know, a lot of people as, but that's neither here nor there. Oh, sorry. Let's Knicks. So because I think we gotta wrap up and start asking ourselves. Like, I'm drawing from a lot of uh, what you've brought to the table. Like, why haven't they won a title in the last 50 years? A combination of the overestimation of Patrick Ewing not knowing the help that he could have really used. Uh, The savior complex of thinking if you just bring in somebody with the magic formula, you know in agrarian times, James Dolan would have been the guy to buy the magic beans. I mean, come on. And then the James Dolan's just his putrid, toxic existence. And then the New York impatience with trying to build something from the bottom up. Does that sum it up for you for why they haven't won in 50? Am I missing anything? No, I I think that that's pretty much those are the big. Those are really the big culprits. You know, there's one thing I didn't say that a lot of people would say. And there's a reason why I didn't say it, because as someone who lived through it, I think it's bullshit. It's one man's name. Michael Jeffrey Jordan. People will no, say that. Is, 
I think that's horseshit, but you know people would say that. That Jordan right. like, blocks Ewing from winning a title. It's that is the that is the super, super lazy. It's like, you know, if you want to give kind of a one-word answer, oh, it's because of the most famous player ever. That's the reason. Uh, as I had said, I didn't feel and, and and it also doesn't make any sense. Like Jordan blocked him. Jordan was on the Chicago Bulls. So having Jordan was better than having Ewing. Okay, so that means that if there was no Jordan, then that means that like, and that's the thing, if there's no Jordan, if he doesn't exist, I don't see this flowery path for the Knicks. They are one of the teams in the mix before like when jordan couldn't overcome detroit the knicks couldn't overcome detroit when yeah. detroit couldn't overcome boston the knicks couldn't overcome boston i'll say so, also crazy insulting to that portland trailblazers team to think the knicks would have rocked them in the finals that Trailblazers team would have kicked the snot out of the Knicks. As we said at the beginning, I never felt ever in any year that the Knicks had the most talented team, that they had the, the team to beat. And I think, you know, when I think about the long-term heartache and distant triumph of being a Knicks fan, the fact, like the fact that we still look upon John Starks. Oh my God. If the John Starks hadn't shot two for 19, they would have had that really says volumes to me. Mm. It really does, Dave. Hey, it's true. We know that. And and you've spoken very convincingly and eloquently in the past about a bad decision on Riley to not utilize Orlando Blackman when Starks was having a terrible game. That's all true. But again, when you look at all the players who have existed in the NBA orbit and have made impact, a generation of fans, myself included, looking at John Starks says, I mean, means that we were always fighting that incredible uphill battle. It was Isaiah. It was Bird. It was Jordan. It was Elijah Wan. And all of those guys were greater superstars than, um, than our superstar. And so, so it, the end result mm. makes sense to me. I don't feel as though the squandered, I'm sorry, Dave, I keep cutting off. No, no, no. The squandered opportunities have been after the Knicks were good. Those Knicks, what, what the Knicks gave New York and gave Knicks fans for 15 years was fantastic. I'm grateful for it because, uh, you know, like they gave us entertaining, competitive basketball against the greatest players and teams ever for a long time and gave us hope that they would comp could compete on that level and occasionally did. And that really sustained us for a while after that, to believe that it could duplicate itself. Once that ended, it was the lack of hope that happened. And 
you know, Dolan, of course, being the primary villain. And as we've said, kind of the rotating cast of uh, saviors of, of incompetent saviors yeah. is what prevented, as we've as we have said in the past. We, in, in a way, they had to get Marbury and Anthony through trades because no frontline free agents come to New York. We've talked about that at length. I don't have to launch through that, but that I think has been the defining thing. You know, yeah. you, you have home, you have homegrown Tim Duncan in San Antonio, but most other, while the Knicks have been floundering, the, you know, most other championship teams and championship, uh, Eras have been defined by acquisitions, by being a destination where where a foundation is being built and then a foundational piece or pieces decide to join that. And that's what turns an emerging team into a championship team. Nobody wanted to be that person on New York. Nobody. So so it was everywhere else that those things were happening. It was Golden State, it was Miami, it was Cleveland, that those things were happening. Nobody was coming to New York, so we had nothing else except our management's bad decisions. Yeah, and we talked about this, and, but you, you brought up something we didn't bring up. I was trying to sum up, but you brought something really important to the table. Like in the era of player empowerment and free agency, we're not a destination city even though we're New York fricking city. And that to me, I do think is a Jordan legacy thing. Cause you know, all these players want to be Jordan. You know, he's the apple of everybody's eye, but instead of wanting to own the garden by being a Nick, owning the garden meant you go into the garden and conquer. It's such a big deal for LeBron. It was such a big deal for Steph. Remember his rookie year when he went nutso at the Garden? Uh, they're like forty-seven or something. It was it was must for um, James Harden. We had some amazing games with Houston at the Garden. So that culture shift is something we got to get over in a big way. That no, the Garden you conquer the Garden by being a Nick, not by traveling there and trashing the team. So I think that's that's a really important point about that. And I think that's the reason why we're not a destination place too. It's like, I don't want to live in New York. I want to go to New York. Nice place to visit, you know, and, and that the basketball version of that mentality. The other thing real quick is that when you mentioned John Starks, to me, I love John Starks and he's symptomatic of the problem of everything we're talking about here. John Starks was a fine player. He is a folk hero in New York. For God's sakes, he sits courtside. People lose their minds for John Stark. John Stark didn't have one-tenth the career of my, my man who I seem to cape for at every moment, Rolando Blackman. Yet Rolando Blackman could walk into any A&P in New York and get himself some Fruit Loops. John Starks, no, he'd have a different time in the A&P where he actually worked before his ascent into the NBA. So John Starks, again, great story, not great player, power of New York. It makes us all basketball uh, imbalanced. It makes us, I don't want to say not smart, but it makes us imbalanced in how we judge these players. And then we can't ever look at things honestly and build honestly. 
Now, Thibodeau's a little bit of a different kettle of fish, partly because he's nuts. He's absolutely out of his mind. So for him, he could be coaching in Peoria right now. He'd be coaching exactly the same way, which I respect about him, even though, and I say this with a worried tone, he does seem to be someone who, you know, he, he has a shelf life, as it were, in terms of how he relates to players. I thought he would have exceeded his, actually. I am, it, it, it's been a really pleasant surprise. Good call, that's that right. Thibodeau, that Thibodeau uh, has connected with this team. Uh, and, and the results uh, obviously prove that Tibbs, in his two previous head coaching stops, has won a lot of games and, as you said, has a very, very short, understandably short shelf life. He burns out players. He plays his starters 41 minutes a night. And his hard-driving style, every drill, every practice, uh, is life and death. Uh, You know, that works conceptually or on the high school level, but not in the NBA. And so I actually thought that that players would have tuned out Tibbs by now, because that's what happened. They have not. So I actually think that, like, Tibbs' insanity has worn down New York. And mm-hmm. now, like, like, that's kind of part of New York sports. So, so he might last... Uh, he might last a little bit longer. And obviously we've been saying, I like what he's doing with this team. So, uh, you know, so, so I'm not, I'm not anxious to see him uh, depart just yet. Uh, I know we're wrapping up. I, I was really, uh, really enjoyed talking about this with you. I think it's been very therapeutic uh, actually for me. Uh Right you back know, at to, you, to, to kind of verbally, verbally, uh, and spiritually relive uh, the ghosts of Nick's past. But uh, before we go, one name that I want to bring up uh, is somebody who's not been mentioned yet. And for my Nick's fanhood, he's incredibly important. We have talked about. Ewing, because, you know, and Ewing being drafted first in 1995, that kind of beginning, beginning the Knicks age as, as we know it. When I became a Knicks fan and became aware of the NBA, I think just a season or two before Ewing was drafted, the Knicks were Bernard King. And... It was, so my initiation and kind of, you know, people of, of, of my generation as you are, our initiation into, we have talked about the Knicks being chasers, being mm-hmm. kind of, you know, we're not the glitziest, we're not the prettiest, but we're going to work harder and hit harder and hit last. And that's and and you know and and that's comforting for New Yorkers to think about ourselves in that way. And having Bernard King in a league run by Larry Bird, we were proud to stand behind Bernard. 
Larry got the MVPs and he got the championships, but it was there was more dignity to being in New York with Bernard than Boston with Bird. And I stand by that, of course. Absolutely. Uh, it will always be that way. But I mentioned that to say Bernard getting hurt puts the Knicks in position to win a possibly, probably tainted lottery and get the number one pick. And I know you remember that couple of years of waiting for Bernard, a repaired bionic Bernard, to team with Ewing. And and that, like, that falling short of that, that not happening, but holding on to that dream until it was truly gone, set the tone for me as a Knicks fan and has been kind of a running narrative in the almost 40 years since making any glimmer of being a competitive team known more for what it's doing on court than for its embarrassing ownership. Uh, I just wanted to call out Bernard King as my godfather of the Knicks, what they mean to the city and what they mean to me as a New York basketball fan. Uh, Frazier, Willis, DeBusher and them, that was always history. By the time yeah. I knew what the NBA was, those guys were retired. No, and they, had won, and they had won two rings in the not-so-distant past at that time. Mm -hmm. Although it seemed now, like the distant past to us. Forever, right? but, it's like ancient history to us. And for me, like probably my most thrilling basketball moment. You know, our most thrilling watching moments are always as kids. And mine would be Game 5, Pistons-Knicks where Isaiah scores 16 points in 94 seconds. That's when it was best of five in the series. And I'll, let me just say that again in case people didn't hear me. Isaiah scored 16 points in 94 seconds. <laughs> I once did the math of what that – it's like – that would be like a 530-point game. Um, and uh, Bernard scored 46 and the Knicks won. That was an experience the likes to which I had the cover of that Sports Illustrated taped to my wall. I mean, it just is something real. That, that's just the most iconic cover in the world. People should look it up. Bernard King Sports Illustrated cover. Not the one with him and Ernie Grunfeld at Tennessee that goes Bernie and Ernie, which I, I don't know. Um, don't look that one up, folks. Don't look that one up. But, but that's the rumpus, man. I'm glad you mentioned Bernard King. I, I actually thought you were going to go down with Charles Oakley, who we didn't mention, but whatever. Um, I mean, the Knicks, it's like when Biggie had that song, got a story to tell, and he talked about a Nick and this sexual imbroglio with, with, a, with a shared uh, femme fatale. And we learned years later that Nick was Anthony Mason. I mean, we're just a lot of... A lot of Knicks in our cultural bloodstream. That's all I'm saying. And they haven't been good for 50 years, but maybe this year, thanks to a worm named Jalen, the worm will turn. Fred the heart still beats, Dave, so we have to hope. Yeah. 
The heart still beats. The heart still beats. The heart wants what it wants. Woody Allen said that. Now I feel gross. For everybody out there listening, this is Edge of Sports Podcast with The Nation Magazine. He's Arya Shirazi. I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace. Hold on.